listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Good morning. Let's pray before I have to speak. <laughs> Dear Lord, we, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that we can look into your word. Lord, I ask that you, you give me the, the words to, to speak. Lord, that you open our hearts and our minds to your word and that um, you work your glory through them. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look this morning. We're in Luke as we, we start in Luke. Uh, Marty gave us an introduction of the whole book uh, at warp speed last week. Um, and this week we're going to begin what Luke calls his orderly account um, so that we might be certain of what we have been taught, as he told um, Theophilus. Um, but first, let's, so we're going to go, we're going to be in verses 5 through 25, um, which is a lot, and we're going to walk through that slowly, but let's read through that first, partly so my head can get in the right place before we start. So starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of the incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you, will, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit of power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Thank you. 
So today's passage, I kind of look at it in, in two ways. The, 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 the visual in my head, that is. And Joe read, read um, from John chapter 1, which talks about the light coming into the world. And this is about John, who is going to present that light. So this is kind of the pre-dawn, if you will. So I have this pre-dawn light picture in my head. And also this is kind of like, I have this Star Wars imagery, but not the movie itself, just the, the prologue. This is, this is kind of the, the words just kind of streaming ahead, and then we're going to cut it off before the movie actually starts, and then Joe will pick up the, the movie next week. So, so those are the two images running through my head, if you will, of the pre-dawn and the words scrolling. This is, this is the prelude. So that, that's where we are in my head anyway. Um, so there are two birth announcements in the beginning of Luke, only one of which we're going to deal with this morning, um, that being John the Baptist, of course. The other being is Christ. Joe's going to deal with that next week. Um, there are similarities in both. Um, Gabriel makes the announcement in both. We'll see. Um, but we'll also see there's some different responses, and we're going to deal with, with not the not-so-good response here this morning. Um, Luke is the only gospel that mentions the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. It comes first, but it is not the most important of the two. Um, that in itself is representative of John's life and mission. His ministry came before Christ to prepare the way for Christ. And John said of himself in speaking of Christ, he must increase and I must decrease. So Luke is going to show us how God is working to accomplish his redemptive plan for mankind and at the same time showing us the messy, authentic lives that are interwoven with that plan. Um, Nate's introduction to the one song there, I had to turn around and say to Joe, well, you just summarized my sermon. I can, I'm going to stay seating because that's it's God's plan unfolding and how we're part of that plan. Um, but we have to fill time, so you're in. Um, in this passage, we see multiple storylines intersecting and intertwining. Um, we see the continuing narrative of the whole of Scripture that is God's plan to redeem a people for his glory and our salvation. Uh, we see the announcement of John's birth and the pronouncement of what he is to do and be in God's plan. And we also have the somewhat messy lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth, John's parents. In all this, God is the central character of the narrative. It is God's plan, God's announcement, God's fulfillment, God's judgment, and it's all for God's glory. This is a narrative with history, and as I was preparing this, I was thinking that, you know, this, a narrative in history, this is a Chris Schrock sermon. He should be up here doing this one. He's the storyteller and the historian. Because we begin in, so in verse 5, again, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. 
So Luke begins his orderly account. And here he gives us a historical marker. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, he says. This would be Herod the Great, who we know best from Scripture as the king who ordered all the infant boys killed in Matthew 2. And that story is not out of character for Herod. He was known for his cruelty to anyone who perceived as a challenge in his position of authority. Apparently that included at least one wife, a mother-in-law, and three sons whom he had killed. Now, there are times that all of us guys can understand the wife and the mother-in-law, but the three sons, that's over the top. All right. He was not a Jew, but a puppet king of, of the Roman Empire, first put in place by Antony, and he, he was cunning enough to keep his position even when Augustus became emperor. So that was Herod, cunning and cruel. Notably, Herod restored the temple that Zechariah was serving in at the time, but he also built a number of pagan temples and, and promoted pagan practices. So as a result of the hearts of many were turned from God during this time, times were dark. Herod's reign also marked a time in history where Israel was not heard from, had not heard from a prophet in over 400 years. God must have seemed silent. That's the darkness I want you to see our story coming into. Herod, Herod's rule, silence 400 years, God seeming silent. God is about to break that silence. So we are introduced to both Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. They were described as righteous and blameless. And blameless here does not mean sinless, but that they faithfully sought to obey the commandments and laws of God. We see a similar phrase used um, in talking of Noah, David, and Joseph in the Old Testament. So, the bottom line, they were good folks, but they were not perfect. So we see here that they had no child, and they were advanced in years, meaning that the likelihood of a child had passed them by. So though they were otherwise considered righteous, this would have wrongly been looked upon as a reproach from God. It would also have practically given them an uncertain future as they were advanced in years. They didn't have somebody to take care of them necessarily. They most likely prayed for years for a child, seeing that they were righteous before God. And given their advanced years, they most likely came to accept that the answer from God was no. One commentary pointed out this way. In, um, in Elizabeth and Zachariah's case, the striking thing is that they handled a lifelong disappointment and social shame with righteousness and blamelessness before God. They served God even though they did not have what they wanted. I think we can assume that their character, from their character, uh, as it's described, that they did not serve God to get what they hoped for, but they served God because he was their hope. So they were both descended from priestly families. And Luke, um, adding some historical authenticity to his account here, even tells us the division of the priests that Zechariah served in. Now, from the time of David, and you can, if you want to look that up, it's First Chronicles chapter 24, by the way. Um, the priests were divided into 24 divisions, and Abijah was one of the heads of those priestly families. Each division served for a week at the temple every six months, and we see here in our verses that Zechariah was currently on duty. So the duties of the priests were determined by casting lots. Um, and that's because there were thousands of priests that served in the temple at any one time. 
So to determine who had the privilege to burn incense in the, in the holy place, that is the, the chamber that was outside the Holy of Holies in the, in the temple, um, during the sacrifice, they cast lots, and this time the lot fell to Zechariah. Um, this was a big day. Not only because the lot fell to him, but because it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Once you served that way, you didn't get to serve that way again. This was it. Each priest only got to do this once. So you can imagine that Zechariah could not wait to go home and tell Elizabeth about this day. Hey, honey, guess what I got to do today at work? But it gets bigger than that. Verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. By the way, the, the right side of the altar of incense, a little, because I'm a historical kind of geek, but the right side of the altar of incense would have been where the Holy of Holies was where he, from where he was standing. So it's like the presence of God represented in the Holy of Holies. So Gabriel's coming out of in a way, of the Holy of Holies from the presence of God to speak, because he's on the right side to speak to Zechariah. But anyway, that's just a chase a rabbit tidbit. But anyway, so and Zechariah, okay, so and go back. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, and he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So God is working his plan here. So Zachariah is right in the middle of a once-in-a-lifetime experience, burning the incense. He's probably focused on that, burning the incense before the Lord, and bang, there appears an angel right in the middle of things. And he has what Scripture tells us is the normal response to an angel. He's afraid. So we see, we see in chapter 2 in, that when the shepherds meet the angels, they're filled with great fear. So that seems to be the biblical response. Anytime you see an angel, you're filled with fear. Um, the angels also seem to say all the time, don't be afraid, which apparently is easier said than done. So we see that. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, and he will be great before the Lord. And he, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even in his mother's womb. The second thing the angel says is, I heard your prayer. Now what do you think he was praying for? Some think a son, obviously, because the angel says, you will have a son. I don't think so. That's why I don't think so. Because I, I think he prayed for that. I think he prayed for years for a son. But not this day. I don't think he prayed for that. Because I think he already, that, and others have commented, and I agree with them, suggest that Zechariah had 
already most likely given up on praying for a son because of his old age. I think he was praying for the salvation of Israel. That is what the priest was, who was burning incense would be expected to pray for, for Israel, for the coming of the promised Messiah. And I think this is borne out by what we see later in Zechariah's response to the angel in verse 18. Either way, I think both these prayers are about to be answered. So a son, this is good news. Some wanted to take care of them in their old age. Not only that, he is apparently going to turn out okay. More than okay, he will bring joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. Who wouldn't want a guarantee from an angel that your kid is going to turn out okay? I would have wanted it again. Somebody come tell me. Kid's going to turn. I still would like someone to come tell me. Kid's going to turn out okay. John would not only be okay, but he would be great before the Lord. Jesus later confirms this in the case in Matthew eleven eleven. We read Jesus speaking about John. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's a big thing. No one greater than John. Well, why do you think that is? Well, here's what I think. And this is just me thinking. Uh, I think that it is because John did not make himself great. That wasn't his focus. There was no one greater than John because John, rather than making himself great, pointed to the one greater than all of us, Jesus Christ. That was his mission, to point to Jesus and declare him Christ. John was not to be filled with wine or strong drink, but be, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that reminds us of a Nazarite vow from the Old Testament. It also reminds us of the words of Paul to the Ephesians. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. <clears throat> so how about a kid preloaded with the Holy Spirit from the mother's womb? Well, this has got to be a first. But then I found it. It wasn't the first, actually, because Jeremiah says, before I, God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the, in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And we're going to see that's also true of John. There's another sermon in there about in the womb, but we'll, Joe will handle that in another time. So God chose sovereignty over this child by first giving him his name, John, when, so you, in the, when you name somebody, you've, you're claiming sovereignty over them and filling him with the Holy Spirit. He's been called for God's purpose in God's timing. We see God's plan unfolding. The announcement is also the fulfillment of a promise. Verse 16 again, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So one of the last declarations of prophet centuries before came from Malachi. That's 400 plus years before. Malachi 4, 5 and 6 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day. I love that phrase, before the great and awesome day. God coming, that's that great and awesome day. And Jesus Christ, that's that great and awesome day. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the Father. Sorry. 
And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So John was that prophet. John was that prophet. Not Elijah literally, but in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah had led the people back to God in a time where King Ahab and Jezebel had turned Israel to Baal worship. John would, in a similar fashion, call the Jews to repent and to return to God. The angel's words here also echo Isaiah 40. Luke quotes from them himself in chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 2 through 6 says this. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John was not only to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, he was to make a people ready for the Lord. He would need the Holy Spirit to accomplish this task, which we've seen that he's been given. John would call the people to repentance, but he would also point them to Christ for forgiveness of sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he would say. He was not calling them to repent to direct them to a religious practice, to be better Jews, to right living, but to direct them to a person, a Savior, the person of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon described it this way, quote, To get people to come to Jesus just as they are is not easy. To get them to give up the idea of preparing, to get them prepared to come without preparing, to get them ready to come just as they are, this is the hardest part of the work. Only the grace of God, working mightily through the word by the Spirit, will prepare people to come to Christ. Prepared by being unprepared, so far as any fitness of their own is concerned. The only fit state in which they can come is that of sinking themselves, abandoning all idea of helping Christ, coming in all their natural impotence and guilt, and taking Christ to be their all and all. End quote. So we see that in John's ministry. If we look to, to John chapter 10, we find Jesus talking about him. Um, verse 40 of chapter 10, and John says, he, that is Jesus, went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So John was not a miracle worker. He didn't do a sign for them. He was a preacher that pointed to the Savior, and we are to point to the Savior. So a light was coming. Joe read for us earlier in, in John 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
Out of the silence of history, God was fulfilling his promises. A light was beginning to dawn. John came to bear witness about that light. So God answers prayers in his own way, in his own time. That is true for both prayers for the completion of his redemptive plan and the coming of Christ. It is also true in our personal lives. Prayers for those who might not know Christ, prayers for those hurting, prayers for the circumstances of our lives. God answers prayers in his own way and in his own time. And even if the cultural or personal circumstances seem dark, they are often dark, God is still at work. He raises up faithful servants to declare, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So if you remember the prologue thing, the scrolling, and you hear the music, and right here in our verses, the music just slams shut, and we don't get the response that we're hoping for. Because just as we're at this high note of... John and his work and God coming into the world. This announcement from the from the angel, Zachariah's response is a little less than what we hoped for. Verse 18, And Zachariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be filled in their time. This is a heartbreaking development. Up to this point, we are presented with Zechariah walking blamelessly before the Lord. And then he responds with unbelief. And to be sure, this is unbelief. He's not asking, how will this happen? Like Mary will later when Gabriel visits her in the verses next week. No, he is asking, how shall I know this? Or another translation renders it, how can I know that this will happen? In other words, like Gideon in, in the Old Testament, he is asking for a sign. And unfortunately, Gabriel is going to give him a sign. And that sign is he will not be able to speak. So our first response, at least my first response, tends to, this, tends to be amazement at the lack of faith of Zechariah. After all, here is an angel right in front of him telling him face to face, delivering a message from God. Apparently not just any angel, but Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Apparently, Zechariah's doubts are greater than his fears to question Gabriel and God. Surely Zechariah knows God can do this. He is a priest after all. He knows his scripture. God did similar for Abraham and for Sarah and uh, Hannah, Samuel's mother in the Old Testament. Surely if you or I were there, we would have responded differently. Maybe. Maybe not. Unfortunately, the truth is that this is so disappointing, at least to me, maybe to you, because we can relate to it so well. It appears from Zechariah's statement that he has lost sight of God because he is focused on his situation. He sees he is old. He sees that his wife is old. He does not see Almighty God who can do all things. He focused on himself. He focused on his situation. He did not focus on God. An all too familiar scenario. 
Peter did the same thing in, in Scripture when he walked on the water in Matthew 14. Everything was wonderful and took he on the water. He's out there on the water with Jesus. He, then he took his eyes off Jesus and considered the storm. We read in Matthew, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Zechariah is not the first to respond this way. Uh, even Abraham, who was credited with righteousness um, due to his faith, when God first promised him heirs, heirs he asked in, in Genesis 15, he said, Oh God, how am I to know that I shall possess this? But Abraham got a sign. Gideon had to lay down his fleece twice before he believed God. And Hezekiah asked for the shadow to go back ten steps as a sign, and it was done for him. So, why Zechariah? Well, in God's sovereignty, they made out a little better than Zechariah. That's God's sovereignty. So, although Zechariah is made silent, it is, only, it is only until John is born. That is also an act of mercy, considering he did not believe the word of God. But while recognizing God's grace, we must take seriously the sin of unbelief. Jesus condemns sign-seeking like we see in Luke 11. He says, when the, crowds were increasing, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. R.C. Sproul says this in a quote, to not just believe in God, but to believe God is the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. I'll say that one again. To not just believe in God, but to believe God is the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. I don't think we take seriously enough the sinfulness of unbelief. We need to understand that unbelief in the word of God is sin. And not only is it sin, but it's an egregious sin. And not only is it an egregious sin, but it's a sin that has eternal consequences, unquote. So I think we can relate to the doubts that Zechariah had. Personally, I can. Um, I can point, for example, to Psalm 118, verse 6. says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That is the word of God. I know it. Yet when confronted with opportunity sometimes to step out in faith, to walk, walk on the water like Peter sometimes, um, if you will, I fear man way too often. And I say, well, you know, show me I'm supposed to do that, God. I must repent of that. It is sin. Make no mistake, doubts are not uncommon in our sanctification. We have them. We all have them. That does not mean that they should be taken lightly. I think the story of the father who brought his son to Jesus to be rid of an evil spirit in Mark chapter 9. He, said, he asked Jesus if he could heal his son. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I don't know about you, but I find myself there way too often. Lord, help my unbelief. We must confess unbelief and ask the Holy Spirit to give us the faith to believe. And don't think that faith is something we muster on our own. I've got to work that up. That's not a work. 
Philadelphia too is by the grace of God. Here's another quote from Spurgeon. Quote, you see, even in the saving faith that Abraham had, he had enough to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to him, to have his salvation guaranteed. There was still that element of doubt in his heart. Note well, if we do not believe God's words, we shut ourselves up to judgment. He says, you will be dumb because you did not believe. Listen carefully and read your Bible and see if this is so. In order to spend eternity lost forever without Christ, what you have to do is step over the cross of Jesus Christ, navigate your way around it, disbelieve it, say, I refuse it, I will not bow my knee. And to disbelieve is to embrace the judgment that inevitably comes. Because you see, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Either accept the gift or embrace the judgment, Spurgeon says. Unquote. So Zechariah got his sign. Verse 20, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be filled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So Zechariah was unable to speak when he should have been going out to the people to proclaim a blessing. That's what the priest did after after they did the incense. They went out and proclaimed a blessing, and he had a blessing. What a blessing. He could not tell them the good news that the angel had brought either to him personally or to the nation. All he could do was gesture. We presume he finished out the week and went home, and he couldn't even properly tell his wife about the day. The angel, the prayer answered. He couldn't take any of that. That was his judgment. Thankfully, we see that Zechariah, in the end of chapter 1, did not persist in unbelief, but when John is born, he is filled with the Holy Spirit and bursts forth in prophecy, praising God for the fulfillment of his plan to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. How hard that must have been not to be able to proclaim it for nine months of silence. That was judgment on his unbelief. And finally, we see that while Zachariah was forced to be silent, we see Elizabeth's response was, on the other hand, quiet and worshipful. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So God is working even when he seems silent. He has a plan from the beginning of the world to redeem a people to himself. He is working that plan in his time and in his way. Sometimes today we still think, we're, what are we waiting for, God? What's, let's fulfill this plan. Peter tells us, though, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
So woven within God's redemptive story are personal stories, like John, who was to serve in big ways for a time drawing crowds to hear him speak of repentance and the coming of the kingdom of God, but also in small ways like Zachariah and Elizabeth, imperfectly but faithfully following the Lord and rejoicing in salvation that comes by Christ alone. I hope this morning that you can find your story entwined with Christ's as well. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we, we thank you for your story, for your plan of salvation that we see in this passage just beginning to dawn the proclamation of the birth of John who will be proclaimed Christ who will be our salvation, who is our salvation. Lord, we thank you for that story. We thank you that you include us in that story by inviting us in to believe, to commit, to follow you. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that in our time of doubts, that you are still holding on to us, that your spirit is still within us, Lord, drawing us back to you. Forgive us our unbelief. Help our unbelief, Lord, as we seek to follow you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.